How much money do you have on you? Enough to last the day? The week? The month? Or perhaps you're a forward thinker. Your money's not on you, don't be silly, it's on a card. Or on your phone or your smartwatch. You've joined a generation of people for whom, one by one, their money is becoming invisible. But what does that mean for the world? I'm Helen Joyce, finance editor of The Economist, and this is Future Watch, where we explore behind the scenes of the future. Over the next three episodes, I'm going to take a look at the future of money, and today it's part one, the death of cash. Money. Everyone wants it. Too much cheap money sloshing around the world. Show me the money. It's all about bucks, kid. Conversation. First of all, is cash really dying? I mean, I think if you look at the sort of overall big picture figures, what you see is a steady reduction in the use of cash. David Birch is a technologist and financial expert. In the UK, we had the crossover point some time ago where debit cards became the dominant form of retail payment. We've just gone through another cusp, actually, this year. Credit cards have now overtaken cash as well. Cash is kind of leaving the mainstream. David says there's a reason people are rushing for alternatives. Cash is surprisingly inefficient. When you go down to the shops and buy something with cash, it looks like it's cheap and efficient and free. But that's because the costs of that infrastructure are very thinly distributed. You know, someone had to pay for the ATM machine. Someone had to pay to fill the ATM machine up with money. Somebody had to pay to transport the money around in armoured cars. The shopkeeper has to count up the money at the end of the day and go and close it. He suffers from shrinkage in the tills. He's the one that takes the counterfeit £20 note and has no recourse for it. It costs a lot of money to have cash. Depending on where you are in the world, cash is still showing strong vital signs. But the direction of travel is another matter. 89% of worldwide payments made in 2013 were in cash, and now that number is down to 77%. According to David, that's thanks to the rise of the mobile phone. When I first came into the industry, which is quite a few years ago, I guess the assumption was that everybody would use cards and that would that would get rid of money because I think what we can see now looking back with the wisdom of hindsight is it's the mobile phone which is the critical technology for getting rid of money not the card and the reason when you think about it is obvious the card is a way to pay people but a mobile phone is a way to pay and to get paid Sweden is the example people talk about with systems like Swish or M-Pesa in Kenya because people can pay each other with mobile phones as well as pay the shop that turns out to be the crucial technology I mean, I've been using my mobile phone in London all day. My cards have never come out of my wallet. And it's not the West that has been in the forefront of this. It's a global phenomenon, and one that I saw up close earlier this year in Shanghai. China's cashless economy is growing rapidly. Digital payments were 4% of all payments in 2012, and that was up to 34% by 2017. One thing I was looking at is how the business environment is changing in large part because of a company called Ant Financial, which owns China's largest third-party payments platform, Alipay. It and its big rival WeChat Pay have revolutionised how many Chinese consumers and businesses use their money. I met our Asia economics editor, Simon Rabinovich, at Shanghai Station before we headed out to Hangzhou. The, the banking system uh, in China traditionally was sclerotic. It was really uh, inefficient. It was difficult to use. Uh, savers couldn't get a decent return on their bank accounts. And then Ant came out of nowhere and it made payments a lot easier. Uh, it made it easier for small businesses to get loans. And it meant that ordinary people could get a decent return on their savings. Um, so it was just wildly popular from, from the outset. 
and the technology was really, really easy to use. It's really intuitive. Um, so it just, it just took off. There was a massive opening in the market. They moved into that opening very quickly. Hangzhou is testament to how these smooth payments are helping customers spend their money. Simon and I went with an Alipay employee to a milk tea shop that signed up for people to use Alipay to buy their drinks. She's talking about why it's so convenient for the customers for uh, making it easier for them to order and now saying roughly 10 to 20 a day. 20 to 30 a day using this, this program. So does she have to pay for this? It's, it's free. And so the yeah. benefit for Alipay is just getting more engagement on the app and more people using the, using the app and using payments. Simon, tell me, how big a deal are digital payments in China? Uh, digital, especially mobile payment, is, is a huge deal. Uh, it's still, you know, in the grand sweep, a, a relatively new thing. It only began in, in 2012, 2013. Uh, but at this point, it's by far the world's biggest market for mobile payments. Last year, there was more than $40 trillion worth of, of mobile transactions in China. More than 90% of all payments now take place via mobile. So cash is now less than uh, 10% of the market and it's it's ubiquitous. Every store, uh, every restaurant, every taxi, basically every point at which you might spend money, there's now a way to do it by mobile and that's how money is spent. So that's a big change for consumers, but what's the effect on businesses? Well, it's been interesting for businesses. Uh, at some level, it makes life a lot easier for them. They don't have to worry about storing large amounts of cash. They don't have to worry about uh, the counterfeit threat, which used to be a big issue uh, when China was still a cash-dominant society. It's also given rise to you know some relative new innovations and in business models. Alibaba launched a grocery store, which is predominantly mobile pay only. You have lots of restaurants now that have menus that you just scan with your phone. You place the order through your phone and, and payment is done through that. Um, there's bike sharing companies which are entirely based on on users, you know, scanning the bike with their their phone and then being able to use it. Th- these are all business models which theoretically are possible uh, in other countries where mobile pay isn't as common. Um, so long as you've got your bank card linked to your phone, these should be possible. But the sheer fact that mobile payment is so ubiquitous, so dominant, has made these kinds of business models so commonplace now in China. Um, And then also on the financial side, there's been some change as well. Uh, Because so much pay is now routed through Alipay and through the Tencent pay function, they have started functioning as quasi-banks. They they offer uh, users investment options. There's ways to store your cash on their system. Um, So they've become increasingly important players within the financial system as well. At a store selling motorcycles, the owner explained how using Alipay had allowed him to access loans digitally and that these loans had displaced the need to look for cash loans from people he knew. So they, um, first of all, the store opened up in 2012. You know, he wasn't able to get a bank loan, so he'd borrow money from friends or he'd use a credit card. If it wasn't for, for Ali, he still would have gotten loans, but it would have been from his friends. And it would have been a lot harder because he'd have to go to a lot of different friends. And, and then, you know, people need money back and they need money back. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, it's a lot more convenient. That's a word we're going to keep hearing in our cashless future. Convenient. It's why these cashless alternatives take off so fast. There are difficult questions about what we're willing to trade for a more convenient world. 
But this is a revolution of convenience, whether you're selling motorcycles in Hangzhou or you're, say, an academic in Sweden. So I'm probably the archetype of the cashless user. I haven't held cash in, in my wallet in many, many years. This is Claire. I'm Claire Ingram Bogush, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the House of Innovation at the Stockholm School of Economics. She's been researching how technology is transforming Sweden's relationship with money, but she's also been living it. And if, for instance, I were to go into Stockholm from my home, um, I would take take a walk down to the train station, buy my ticket on my phone on the way. And, and in practice, it's very inconvenient to buy a ticket any other way other than, than by app or, or by credit card. And then I'd, I'd go into the city, into Stockholm, and by and large, the, the coffee shops in Stockholm don't take cash either. With some of the chains, they have an app um, or else your, your credit card or swish. So, so this uh, cash app in order to buy a cup of coffee. Homeless people sell a magazine, for instance, and, and they take swish. Children who come around selling things to raise funds for their school, they take swish as well. If you're a kind of insider in the cashless economy, there's no real reason to carry cash anymore. It's just so convenient not to. And how did that happen? Was it organic or did someone plan it? Very much an organic process in the sense that banks saw a market demand for um, particularly mobile services that they capitalized on. So organic in the sense of banks rather than coming from people uh, or, or entrepreneurs. Sweden's an early mover where three in four of all payments are cashless and it shows how quickly this can happen. Let's cast our minds forward a bit from here. Is that really as far as we can go? Well, up until now, we've used the technology to to speed up uh, and, and make more efficient payments that we have now. Payments David Batch again. And, dollars and, and this sort of thing. Because what's different now is that people are starting to think about using the technology to create new kinds of payments, new kinds of money. And, and, and that's why this feels different. There's all sorts of means by which using cash has shaped how we think about money. If there's no longer a need for physical notes and coins, things become a lot more flexible. I happen to think, I mean, it's a personal opinion, but I happen to think we need more and different kinds of money. I don't know if we want a monoculture. I, I, I wonder if we shouldn't be looking at a future where there are more different kinds of money. David imagines a world of money that's vastly more complicated than even the system we have now, and yet is remarkably simple to navigate. It sounds like it would be very complicated to open your wallet and see 20 different kinds of money. But of course, you would never do that. Because if I have to pay you, it's my mobile phone paying your mobile phone. And the dreary negotiations about what different kinds of money you want and what different kinds of money I have and what the exchange rates are and whatever, this can be done in a nanosecond by the supercomputers that are on the other ends of our mobile phones. Because my AI will be managing my portfolio of monies to the best effect. So it would seem crazy in the real world for me to hold some Avios points and IBM stock and some paint that the guy down the road owes me and a couple of bus tickets and try and buy stuff from you with those. But actually, for our supercomputers, for the nanosecond of negotiation it would take, here's the portfolio I've got, what do you want? I'll take these, let's go and exchange that. Different story. I won't pretend that that doesn't have some dystopian connotations if it falls into the hands of the wrong people, you know. Uh, and obviously we have to design things intelligently and carefully. But you can see what I'm driving at. You know, there is the possibility of making the financial system work better for everybody when it's digital rather than merely digitized. 
The change we're seeing now could be nothing like the transformation that's around the corner. But are we ready? I have an odd feeling about this. You're probably going to say this is because I'm English, but I think there's a class element to it. So if you're a middle-class professional, you don't see cash from one week's end to the next because you go everywhere with your debit card and credit card and so on. But there are people who still depend on it. And I think one of the lessons that we can learn from, from other parts of the world, Scandinavia in particular, is that if we just allow cashlessness to happen, then it has some attendant problems because it marginalises some groups. We should be designing the cashless world that we, we, society, want and then asking the technologists to implement it rather than let the technologists play with it and we, we have to choose between their sort of menu of offerings. I asked Claire whether Sweden had been prepared for its cashless revolution. It depends who you ask. Uh, I mean, of course, by, by virtue of the fact that there was fairly quick high uptake, the average Joe was ready for it. That said, we've ended up with a lot of people who are outside of the digital finance app world. And one could argue that those people have not been ready for it. And then, of course, just the regulations and education more broadly is a little bit behind the actual service delivery of financial technology apps. So has there been any sort of um, complaint about inequality or any backlash? So when when it comes to inequality here, the concern has been inequality in terms of access rather than economic inequality, uh, but then also concerns around privacy. And so the backlash has particularly come from an organized group called the Cash Uprising or Contant Uproet. And they really want to see either some sort of financial support coming from the government for, for the continued provision of cash services. So either government financially supports ATMs or requires that businesses continue to take cash. But it hasn't really taken foot here as it might elsewhere in the world. Cashlessness is not without its downsides. Simon Rabinovich again. We've got to a good position in terms of the way that mobile payment operates now in China. But there were a lot of risks and a lot of problems along the way as well. Not specifically mobile pay, but if you look at the peer-to-peer industry, there was an awful lot of fraud, a lot of scams. So the the, the total kind of hands-off approach that was the initial approach in China, that clearly was not the right one. and, And regulators are still kind of picking up the pieces from that, cleaning up the mess. So I think some combination of giving companies the scope to innovate, but also keeping somewhat more oversight initially, I think is probably the right the right way forward. Is there talk in China about helping people who've been left behind to catch up or to become integrated with this new economy? So there's always a push to, to bring mobile phones to less connected parts of the country. So coverage is now nationwide, and there's, there's been the development of lots of cheap mobile phones, even subsidized for, for poorer people. But you know, as I mentioned, there's still lots of people who are not ready to make that leap towards mobile pay. And so one thing that the regulators have been emphasizing in, in recent years is that you know fiat money, money that is issued by the, the central bank, has gone got to be accepted. It's legal tender uh, everywhere in the country. And so every now and again, you'll have stories of stores or restaurants that are saying only mobile pay is accepted. uh, And the regulators come out and they say that is not legal. And so they have to constantly, you know, remind vendors, remind retailers uh, that they, they still do have an obligation to accept cash. It's clear that there are too many people who still rely on cash for us to declare its death. 
There's a lot to look forward to in a cashless world, from frictionless loans and no more queues while people count coins at the supermarket, to a whole new playground for fintech innovators. But we can't forget the things that will get lost and left behind. And spare a thought for the Hollywood directors who'll have to start setting their bank heist movies in the past. In our next episode, we go to the other side of the ledger and take a look at the banks. Technological innovation means that a generation of challenger banks with no bricks and mortar infrastructure can be two or even three times as efficient as their traditional rivals. But are fintech upstarts really going to take down the big beasts of Wall Street? The relationship between customers and their banks had been broken. What's the next generation or the logical evolution of the bank account based on technologies like the smartphone? That's next time on Future Watch with me, Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs>